Therapeia for the soul is that we have to become a philosopher in the truest sense is an attendant to the soul of others, other beings, and also the culture. And they don't even have to be human beings. But there has to be this real sense of service and care and attention in the interest of liberating and healing suffering. And so then you have to have a, a lot of a holistic ecology of practice for that to happen. And writing and reading is not a sufficient ecology of practice. It's too anemic. It's too weak. So we have to have things like meditation and ritual and ceremony. Sometimes we have to work with medicines like plant medicines, but there are many medicines in the world. And we have to learn those medicines and learn how to work with them. Again, always in this direction where, yes, there could be more healing, there could be less suffering. There could be more wisdom, love, and beauty in the culture, and less conflict and aggression, and so on. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations. We have a very special guest, a wonderful guest today, and also a little bit different than our usual conversations that we will be having in this episode particularly. So let's welcome Nikos Patadakis to our conversation. Hi Nikos, Hello. thank you so much. Thank you, looking forward to speaking with you. Thanks for, thanks for carving out this time for us. Um, so I, um, to give a context, of course, to our listeners, just to have an idea and a bit of context of, of your background, just want to say a few things and then we can dive in. Um, so Nikos is a consulting philosopher and educator who works with the non-duality of nature and culture, drawing from the sciences, the arts and the wisdom traditions. He helps individuals and organizations become more empowered, more creative, more ecologically aware, and more capable of transforming and healing self and world at the same time. Philosophy is therapy for the soul, a master key for excellence and success, and fundamental to the evolution of individual and society. So these are incredible concepts um, that we could definitely open threads to dive into, Nikos. And, but before we begin, uh, what brings you to this work and your little bit of your background, maybe? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, philosophy is, in one sense, the thing nobody can get away from. You know, you can, uh, you can go through your whole life and not uh, become a chemist or not use psychedelics, but a, a chemist has a philosophy of science. Uh, they have a way that they do things. So philosophy is how we do things. And in the dominant culture, um, one way to look at, at uh, philosophers is that the culture long ago kind of started to get out of kilter, and you need people who are aware that it's getting out of kilter and can say, hey, the way we're doing things is somehow not in accord with spiritual and ecological reality, so we have to have a rethink. 
And in traditional cultures, those people might be just uh, spiritual elders or shamans. Or, uh, but in the dominant culture, what we could refer to loosely as the dominant culture, that we we have these people like Socrates and Plato, who were physicians of the soul, both the individual soul and the soul of the culture. And uh, it just happened to be that uh, I went to a university. Uh, the word philosophy. I was a working class kid. That word was never used. And then I took. A, I wasn't planning to become a philosopher, but when I took a philosophy course, I thought, "Wow, this is the meaning of life and how to be a good person and how we can tra transform the culture and heal individually and collectively." That's what the wisdom traditions offer us, but it's marginalized. So that's why I didn't know about all of this. And then when you get into it in the university, what you find is that. The, there's a difference. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, one of our uh, philosophers from Turtle Island here, also known as the United States now, this part of it is, uh, Thoreau was a nature philosopher, and he famously left the city and he went to live on Walden Pond to live in the wild. And he was writing his reflections of his experience there, and he wrote that nowadays there are professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. And he was recognizing that what we have in the university system, and this is true in Europe too, although the people in Europe are a little more philosophically oriented than here, we're the leading edge of the of the pattern of insanity, you could say, so things are more crazy here. But uh, it is still largely the case that what happens in the university is not what Plato or Socrates or, say, Buddha or Confucius would have thought was real philosophy. They would have thought, well, this is okay, it's interesting in its own way, but it's not what we meant, really. And so I found, I went through to get the PhD, it's just part of like getting a union card, okay, this is how you become philosophy in the dominant culture. But the way I practice is more in line with the old traditions. And so the university is, although the students loved what I did, it's not really the best context for philosophy in the more robust sense because uh, the institutional structures are just not interested in having a lot of healing go on in universities. So it's career prep now. So then what I wanted to do was come out into the world uh, at large and, and try to remind us that even in the dominant culture, we have tremendous resources uh, in terms of the wisdom traditions. And nobody would think that we want to do anything ignorantly. No one would say, I should do my job in the most ignorant way possible. But Socrates and these other philosophers would say, okay, but what's the wise way to do it? And most of us don't know because the culture got so adrift from the wisdom traditions, even within its own streams, let alone, of course, then we have uh, non-Western uh, and indigenous traditions that can teach us so much. So that's it. Just to, I, I work to help people realize that they can't escape philosophy. And when we're, where we have suffering, we have a bad philosophy of life. And where we have suffering at a large scale, like a global scale, then you have entire cultures that have really crappy philosophy, but they just don't see it as that. Is that uh, <laughs> let's start off start off off somewhere? Okay, that's a general mm. idea here. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Um, let's dig into this concept of uh, you shared. There are professor of philosophers, but there are uh, not real, real. Pro like, what does that look like? What, what uh, I know you said that we marginalized it, and it's like if if Socrates was alive today, he wouldn't like what's going on in the universities. But yeah. maybe you can touch on that to give us a sense of feel. What is a real philosophy in a sense that we could maybe understand on the most simplest way possible. I don't know if that's even yeah. even okay to do so. 
Oh, of course it is, because it's very concrete. That's one of the defense mechanisms for philosophy in our culture, is that people say, oh, well, that's it's going over my head, or that's it's all very abstract and intellectual. And the answer to that is no. Real philosophy points out that we are in our heads, and that we are living a bunch of abstractions. And the only reason it deals with them is because that's where, where our head is, actually. But it's really about intimacy and getting back down to the concrete. So in the university, one of the differences is that the practice of philosophy is narrowly restricted to the analysis and construction of texts. That's what you do. You read text and you produce text. And Socrates never produced a text. And even the philosophers who did would not see the way we do it as the appropriate practice. So for one thing, you have to have a larger range of practices. Those include practices that cultivate your consciousness. The, the range of conscious states in the university is very narrow in the culture in general. The dominant culture is unique in, in marginalizing states of consciousness that other cultures have invested a lot of energy in. And we are only allowed a narrow band you can stimulate it a little bit, like with caffeine or nicotine. Uh, you can depress it a little bit with alcohol after you've worn yourself out. And that's pretty much where we where we keep you. And uh, Socrates was intimate with other states of consciousness. Um, the Greek society, of course, uh, had a psychedelic ritual. and uh, But Socrates was also uh, able to be in a kind of different state without having taken anything. In fact, he was famous for being able to drink and not get drunk. He didn't like the state of consciousness to to get restricted in any way. So he was okay to drink to open his mind, but this was a special guy. You know, this was not a person who ever slurred or um, had a hangover or anything that we can tell. I mean, he was really a weird, uh, exceptional person. But the other thing that Socrates emphasized is philosophy is therapeia. It's therapy for the soul. So the other thing that happens in the university is it's not oriented toward healing and liberation of the student. The, the philosophers, in, by and large, in the university think, well, if I could just teach them how to read a paragraph of text and understand it, that would be a great accomplishment. Not that they would leave happier or feeling like a better human being. That's not really the aim. And uh, so therapia for the soul is that we have to become a philosopher in the truest sense is an attendant to the soul of others, other beings, and also the culture. And they don't even have to be human beings, but there has to be this real sense of service and care and attention in the interest of liberating and healing suffering. And so then you have to have a, a lot of a holistic ecology of practice for that to happen. And writing and reading is not a sufficient ecology of practice. It's too anemic. It's too weak. So we have to have things like meditation and ritual and ceremony. Sometimes we have to work with medicines like plant medicines, but there are many medicines in the world and we have to learn those medicines and learn how to work with them. Again, always in this direction where yes, there could be more healing, there could be less suffering, there could be more wisdom, love and beauty in the culture and less conflict and aggression and so on. Mm, yeah, that's that really makes sense. I get it now in a different sense um than i thought and you you are the first person that said philosophy is a therapy so that's really profound in itself to just yeah. think think of philosophy as a therapy it never occurred to me before in that sense and also yeah. and what i'm hearing is a very grounded approach to psychedelic use 
yeah. how one informs the other or how philosophy informs psychedelics or, or the other way around. I'm not sure if, if you want to speak to that. I'm uh, sure you have uh, a lot of wisdom around that as well. Um, it's very different than the what we are experiencing in the psychedelic sphere because right now psychedelic field has gone a, a little bit insane and crazy, a little bit out of control. Um, it's almost like um, we have this powerful... Um, you know, toys, let's say, for the sake of argument. And 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 there's lots, it's, it's like um, little children running around, don't know what to do with this thing. They were gifted this toy, uh, but it's very powerful and they don't know what to do with it. So, so, uh, so much noise, uh, so much misinformation, so many modalities uh, in an attempt to create and control and structure, structurize. Um, these conversations are happening all over the world, but I'm observing a little crazy playground and, and somehow you come in and say, Hey, Hey, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to come in from a very different angle and we're going to ground it in a different way that it serves, which is ultimately the agenda is not the agenda, but the, the intention, let's say, is to um, uh, change the world around us and ourselves. So that's kind of the um, insight I just had from the way you spoke to it. Yeah, that's uh, those were beautiful reflections, and they touch on something that we were that we were talking about as well, which is that philosophy is also the frame, the proper framework for excellence and skill in life. So, philosophy the I, the promise of philosophy is philosophers have always been very concerned with education, and so this is why Socrates was put on trial and then killed for corrupting the youth when he was trying to take a stand for their proper education. He was basically saying, no, you are corrupting the youth. I'm trying to teach them to have a real education because he believed that only on the basis of a uh, an education rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty could you truly succeed in life. So he had people in his time, there were various people, including a group of people called sophists, and they were famous for coming into town. And they were kind of like, you know, the Tony Robbins character. If you come and pay me money, then you will be successful and rich. I will make you rich at whatever you want. And Socrates said, no, but what will they become? I mean, rich won't make you happy anyway. And my goodness, what is this education going to make you into? Will you be a truly skillful and wise and loving and graceful being, a beautiful person. And so the idea, part of what you're touching on is that if we want to work with the medicines of the world, do you want to do it excellently and wisely and compassionately, or do you want to just kind of feel your way around? And what's important about the, the relationship to Socrates for us in the dominant culture is that Plato already is is dealing with the kind of situation we're in because the the culture was psychedelic. It, it, anybody could participate in the Eleusinian mysteries. Plato probably did. Socrates probably did. And he's looking around. He's saying, "Wow, you know, these people have a big and and their experience. Keep in mind, this was a big initiation. So you might prepare for a minimum six months. It might be more than that. Twelve, eighteen months of preparation to go." and have this experience. We usually don't do that here. 
And then it was really framed as a, an incredible piece of theater, powerful initi initiatory experience where you were taken into the liminal, into the mystery, and very deliberately oriented toward the great mystery of life and death and what happens when you die and what is the meaning and purpose of your life and what are you. To try to teach people that this, you are more than a bag of skin, right? So this is a profoundly oriented thing. And yet Plato's looking around and saying, yeah, but we're still kind of going down the toilet here. I mean, how is it that people are having these big experiences? And then he also asked this about art. I mean, we still read the, the great tragedians of his time, right? So we're still reading this art saying, this is genius stuff. And Plato's saying, yeah, look, we got genius artists. We have this big psychedelic experience, and yet people are not wise. What's going on? He said, well, you, you have to train more. The, the, just preparing for a big initiatory experience is not actually training wisdom, love, and beauty. He was realizing that we needed to actually pay attention to wisdom, love, and beauty directly and train them in our lives so that the culture became rooted that way. And so, yes, it does. It, it, there's a sense in which the direction, the only productive direction is because we can't escape having a philosophy anyway. So we're going to take some philosophy to that psychedelic experience. We better make sure it's a good one. So the primary relationship, I would say, when I'm talking to people who are interested in, say, in trying with psychedelics or, or, or working with it and want to deepen, you have to start with your philosophy of life and begin training that, and it will change your experience like you can't believe. So it's a far deeper sense of set and setting, this really deep, deep, what is my philosophy of life, and what do the wisdom traditions teach me that could just open up? something that I, I clearly can't know is there, because otherwise I'd already be wise. <laughs> That's the problem with ignorance. It doesn't come with a sign. Hey, you're ignorant here. It's just, I think I'm seeing how things are. And the other side of it is something I can't yet think. And the wisdom traditions can orient us that way. Okay, I hope that answers some of what you were touching on there. Wow. Just had the chills down spine when you said the example of the Tony Robbins, pay me. I'll get you money, you'll be happy. And then the 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 real the 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 um the rational or the tangible experience of life is not limited to that. And then there is us being this human kind of trapped in the physical laws of being human, right? Um and then needing or wanting or desire to transcend this limited physical laws that operate within our embodiment. Um, as far as we inhabit a body, you know, it's it's um, it kind of makes it very clear to me. Like today, I had a conversation with uh, one of our community members, and the conversation I I try to articulate in a way that you know how indigenous people work with the plant medicines. Um, they have some real grounded systems in place where. It's kind of leans towards more of the somatic experiencing of the the whole experience. For example, if somebody's having some pathological symptoms or whatever, they will go to their facilitator or the cranderita or the crandero. You know, some of these names that are um, spoken to the facilitators, and somehow there is no need for those kind of traditions to understand anything further than that. For example, like ayahuasca is a very somatic medicine. 
people who go through the experience. It's very bodily and it's very kind of embodied within your system. And if you ask a indigenous person, a facilitator, for example, my friend, she was from Peru and facilitator, um, they would just say to you, breathe through it, like breathe through it. There is nothing else you need to know here. That's it, breathe through it. Somehow it doesn't work for the Western model. Somehow there is a need for, okay, I'm going through this catastrophic levels of like terrifying experience within my body and I need to understand this. And intellectualizing it or trying to make sense of that sometimes takes the person on a very wrong path of bypassing. And I really now get it through what you are sharing with us. If we can understand our own philosophy, then for me, that would be equivalent to understanding some of these processes of how body is changing, transforming, evolving, initiated, bringing the philosophy aspect into it rather than um, always trying to intellectualize the processes. But then somehow the philosophy brings more grace um, more beauty to this whole experience. Now I see the connection. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's yeah. very powerful, actually. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And it shows you too, because the what would have happened is that in a healthy culture, the philosophy and the education are very deeply embedded in the culture. So it, it doesn't, you, you wouldn't, um, the appearance of somebody like Socrates in a healthy culture would be a very different appearance. He would just be regarded as an elder, maybe a shaman, and you would just have a totally different relationship, and he wouldn't be doing things the way he did. So part of the issue, what I'm trying to get at, is that you can't take a seed that's from the dominant culture, plant it in Peru, and think it's going to grow like the rest of the plants in that ecology. It's not going to. So every ecology has got a context to it. And so if we're going to work with these medicines, we do have to become aware of what our context is and ask ourselves, where are we going to re-indigenize? You can re-indigenize here, and if you were born here, that's great. But that process means you have, that's part of what philosophy is doing, is well, how, how do I indigenize myself here? And I could learn from indigenous people over there, but I can't take their, I mean, that's their culture, right? What, what, is, what do we have available to us? What do we have to recover from ancestors that we've lost? But when you're talking about people running around like they have a new toy, I mean, this is how Socrates saw everybody. And so his thing was to try to get people to just stop, and to stop, pause, and ask, okay, or just admit everything we don't know. Okay, just admit what you don't know, and then start this educational process. But that also relates to what you were asking about before in re relation to dangerous wisdom. Because that's part of what's what's happening is we we sense there's some kind of wisdom in the medicine. If we don't know how to handle it, it actually is a poison. We we may not even see it that way. Most philosophers don't um, make this as explicit as Buddha did. He, it's one of the things I love about him as a philosopher is that he said, "These teachings I'm giving you, you need to handle them like they are a poisonous snake." That is a weird thing for somebody to say, you know, here I am, I'm teaching you this stuff, but be careful. What I'm giving you is dangerous and it's poison if you don't handle it the right way. Now, if you do, then it's medicine. 
And so it's, it really depends on us. And we don't realize that those psychedelic medicines are like that too. It's almost like Darth Vader and, and Yoda, right? I mean, it's the same force. And one, one is using it very differently than the other. And so our, our philosophy is shaping that in, in large measure. And you're right. We don't understand that we're taking ideas, concepts that are poison, and then the medicine can't actually get through them. So it's tricky. Yeah, really tricky. And mm. then the experiences, like you said, you were mentioning uh, spiritual bypass, spiritual materialism of various kinds. We end up rationalizing a lot of ecological degradation even by working with these medicines because everybody's flying to Peru and, and there's all this extraction that's happening. And so the, it is really becoming a poison. I mean, the the Amazon, you know, I, I have a friend who... Um, Traditionally, her medicine came from a, a, a valley where there was an ancient, ancient, ancient ayahuasca vine, and it was cut down. You know, uh, recently it was just a terrible, horrible thing for everybody who knew this vine. I mean, it was you know probably a thousand years old or more. I mean, it was just really as big as a tree, just so thick, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's tragic. And nobody's doing this like on purpose. People are not thinking to themselves, I want to, when we wake up in the morning, we don't say, I hope that what I do today degrades ecology someplace. And this shows another problem uh, that the wisdom traditions try to make clear to us. And that is that we don't know how to intend. So when we think I'm going to set my intention and go into the ceremony, or I'm just going to be very open, my intention is just to be very open. We think we're intending. And what the wisdom traditions show us is that no, what, what, you can say whatever you want, but until you learn the skill of intention, your karma is what you will intend. And a lot of that is unconscious, so you won't see it. And that's why almost nobody woke up this morning thinking, I want to perpetuate structures of power, injustice, inequality, and I definitely want to degrade ecologies and push some species towards extinction. But that's what we get every day. And so you have to understand that somehow or other, that is what we're intending. And that presents this real mystery. That's again, you know, the danger of dangerous wisdom. If you don't know how to wisely orient your intention, then you are a threat to everybody. You're actually dangerous. If you do, then the dangerous thing becomes different. You see, Socrates was dangerous because he did understand. And the danger then becomes a threat to the structures of power. I hope that makes sense. It's almost like saying there are a lot of meanings to dangerous wisdom. One of them is that the, the very thing that I'm presenting to you, here's the wisdom. You could use it to cause problems. And that's like, oh my God. But then there's this thing that once you do use it for the good, you become dangerous. And the structures of power now want to close in on you and tempt you into more spiritual bypassing, more spiritual materialism, more self-deception. They try to pull you back because of the threat that these things present. Okay, so that's some things that are good to think about, I think. This is very psychedelic, very psychedelic, because this is what psychedelics do. If you look at the same, like it's the same symbolic, you know, here is here is the, the the medicine, very dangerously, you know, wise. And then the person I I always understood that it wasn't the medicine so much, but it's the the container, meaning the person who engages or communes with the medicine, is the important key. That's the key, like the factor of of how it's going to turn out. Yeah. And depending, like you said, depending on their education, understanding. And how they can make sense of their experience. It changes everything. It's it's always like 
you know, I'm always getting questions around dosing, uh, what are the best practices, um, harm reduction questions and everything. And I'm always like, it's this container. It's all about this container. It's nothing to do with the dosing. It's not dose dependent. It's not the, you know, none of that is really the key. The factor is that you, you are the, the, the denominator in this experience and where you are on your evolutionary journey and your understanding and your consciousness. Like you said, uh, you could literally, and we see this, right? We see it everywhere. That's why I, I, I give the example of a new shiny toy. All these yeah. infants running around with not knowing what to do with this toy. And sometimes they drop it, break it. Sometimes they cause problems to others. It's literally like that, like a playground of infants don't know what to do with this. And yeah. and I'm glad that you mentioned that it, it, the danger here is two, twofold. Yeah. Very yeah. powerful once you understand. So, so, Nikos, how does one begin their journey of philosophy, of making sense of their own lives and and you know i know this is a big topic i mean i'm sure we probably need 10 episodes to, to uncover something like this or maybe you know how to do it in a really quick simple ways <laughs> yeah well it is it, it it isn't quick in the sense that we do have to recognize that we have a lot of unlearning we have a lot of unconscious material so we don't know where the big blocks are so we need the the three elements that you find in most of these uh, traditions is you have to have some teachings and some good teachers and some good spiritual friends and so part of that is finding a tradition that you resonate with and that seems appropriate i mean i do understand that some indigenous teachers are being are willing to try to teach the people from the dominant culture you really have to reflect deeply on how well that's going to work and where you live and I'm not wouldn't discourage anybody from doing it. But then we also have a lot of traditions that are have been generous, very generous across culture and time. So I can't, uh, I, I'm never going to be a Lakota Sioux. But uh, Buddhist philosophy, for instance, has been it's all over the place. And it's what's nice about it is it evolved um, across different places. And so that gives us a lot to think about and work with. We can adapt. Um, but you know, if you have Christian history, there's there's you have plenty of good teachings in Christianity. What I do emphasize in my own work is to try to. I think where we're at right now is a place where we have to recognize and begin to cultivate the commons again. So once upon a time in Europe, there were areas that were the commons. Nobody really anybody could go into them, and you could collect food, you could collect firewood. Uh, even if you, maybe in some places they didn't want you uh, cutting down trees, you know, it might might be that, okay, that's really close to the uh, landholder's estate and, you know, he, he wants the trees, or but you could collect wood off the ground and so on. And then as part of the development of capitalism, people got thrown out of the commons. There was an enclosure movement. And by the time Marx was uh, doing some of his research, this was kind of a conversion moment for him. He was going through Prussian legal cases and he found that like 80 percent of them had to do with people going into the commons and trying to take uh, wood and food because they had been doing it for you know centuries 
And so they were just being thrown in jail. And he thought, man, this is a real problem. And he realized this too, that it kind of goes together with the capitalist mode of, of development. Uh, it's a style of consciousness. Okay, so anyway, the idea though, that we can get our heads around is that you and I could live along the same beautiful river and you could be in your little house where you have privacy and so on. And I could be in my little place, but we both have a duty of care to the river. We know we both depend on it. Neither of us wants to sully it for the other. We, we don't, we realize we can't over extract from it it belongs to us in common and so it's no one's possession and it has its own intention even in its own life that we have to respect we can't just do whatever we want oh we'll just damn it well the river didn't say that it wants that right and i know that's a weird concept but somehow we can begin to detect if we're really indigenizing ourselves intentions in the landscape and live in accord with them okay so the, similarly you could be in your little uh i don't know buddhist house or atheistic materialist house or jewish house and i might be in my whatever christian i mean i'm not a christian but whatever my thing is and we would recognize that we also share a, a common river of wisdom love and beauty that there is a common ground there is no tradition that says we believe you should live ignorantly. So we teach being ignorant. No, it doesn't exist. There's no tradition that says hatred. That's the way to the good life and that's sacred. No, they, they teach kindness, compassion, love. Compassion has a place in every tradition. Okay, and the same thing with beauty. Nobody teaches to live an ugly life or to be ugly beings, but that we should be graceful beings and beautiful beings. And so that's another way that you can begin is by by trying to educate yourself about the common ground and then see if you could find a tradition where you like the way they, they take that common ground and develop it. So we kind of have to fall in love with it. We don't grow up in a tradition anymore. There's not much that's necessarily alive in our culture like that. But we do kind of have to feel, oh, I really, I'm just drawn to this. And I think that maybe in some cases there are places in the world that are calling us to them because they would like us to come there and heal that land, not just come and take some teachings and leave. But you might be called to the Amazon because you should be healing the jungle, not you know flying back and forth to it. We have to really think a lot about that because there's so much self-deception we could get pulled into. We have to know the difference between an impulse and a real inspiration. And that's not easy in this culture because it teaches us to follow impulses and says, whatever you want to do, you can do it. But who would ask the world if it was okay? Uh, there's always been boundaries to human life. There's always things that, no, you can't do that because that place is sacred, so you can't do that. Okay, so there's a lot, I think, too. But the common ground is not uh, very hard to learn. So that's part of what I do is I offer in the podcast, there's just a lot of free resources that I offer. And then when I work with people, that's what we work on. What is the common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty that will help you begin to feel better, to begin to heal, and to be more skillful? And whatever you do, if you're a singer, the notes should sound better. It should be that concrete. And if you're a business person, then okay, it should be that you can do business in a more effective way, whatever it might be. It should work. Wisdom is what works but without negative side effects. Because lots of things work, but when they're only a fragment of wisdom, like that's what we get a lot of in the self-help catastrophe, is someone says, oh, the flow state, and then everything is the flow state. But there's that's not the way any wisdom tradition presents things. It has to be holistic. And you don't realize that the flow state is hugely limited. It can keep you ignorant in a thousand ways. You can be a totally crass person and be in flow states. So there are all sorts of problems, but we take this one thing and we go crazy with it. And uh, we have to try to find some holism, and we have to recognize all the challenges here, you know what I mean? I hope uh, some of that makes sense. 
it's a, there's a lot to think about, I think. Mm, yeah. It does. Yeah. And the one that stands out for me is finding the common ground to begin with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, the impulse or the inspiration. That's like a million-dollar question. How does one can learn to differentiate or discern, right? Um, In my circles, like one of the conversations, like most potent conversations we continue to have is is to keep uh, our community members in check, for example, because like you said, um, any explorative, you know, modalities like psychedelics or anything else. I mean, to be honest, this is not limited to psychedelics, but happens to be the, the field that I am in. And therefore, I'm trying to make sense of, um, I guess, finding that common ground, but also can we self-empower or reinforce self-empowerment in people to find what they are drawn to naturally, organically, while we create containers and accountability structures that keeps them in check and, you know, somehow play a role of like mentorship but also those of us you know like you said in the wisdom traditions i'm sure like you said socrates would have been an elder with the wisdom can we create those again is it too late for our western model to create similar containers where there are people assuming elder roles where they kind of pave the path and keep people in check because i think that's how coming from my background I see the value of that. And I grew up in a, in, a, in a community and a culture like that. The elders would kind of know how to do things. They would, they have a know-how and they would lead people and they would um, in death, in, in birth, in, you know, festivals. And they just knew how to bring things together. And, and then the, the next generation would learn from just watching, just being involved. There is not much of a teaching, but, it's just the way the elders showed up and the way they demonstrated how it's done that taught so much. Um, now I look back, obviously, appreciating this, but earlier when I was a younger adult, I didn't see that. I didn't appreciate that. If anything, I wanted to run away from that culture. You know, it's like a comeback in a way. And uh, yeah, so is, do you think is it too late for a Western model to go back to some sort of structure to bring people into more authentic work Mm. yeah well uh the thing is that there's a tremendous amount of resilience in the world and if we would we it's not a thing that we can grab after but it is available to us you can look at it in two ways one is that if we are to avert the worst of the catastrophe then only on the basis of wisdom, love, and beauty will we do it. I mean, we could get lucky, but that's not very reliable. So what, you have to ask, what kind of person would have created the catastrophes that we're facing? And what kind of person wouldn't have and would know how to avoid them? The other question, way to ask it is, well, maybe some catastrophe is just coming because we've, we've gone so far. I mean, these, these tipping points are difficult. The uh, Thwaites Glacier, they j- just reported today that they found more melting even than they thought. And, and there's just really, if, if that goes, we're talking about half a meter potentially of sea level rise, that's going to affect people. So then you have to ask, well, what kind of person would navigate that well? 
what's the version of myself? And it's probably a wiser, a more compassionate, more graceful and dignified version. We're all going to do our best, of course. But um, the odds of things being harder on us, this is just what the wisdom traditions have always said. Look, I mean, your life can be really more difficult or less difficult. You can be more graceful and skillful and poised in it or not. And if you train, then okay, that's the way it's going to be. And so, yeah, you're right. That's what the that's what indigenous cultures are like too. It's just that the in the stories, in the ceremonies, in the elders is a philosophy that's well embodied. And what you can have, and this is what I think would appeal to people today, is that in those cultures, you can actually have democracy. So even though I'm Greek and I'm partial to, uh, you know, of course, I want to honor my ancestors, uh, democracy is not a Greek invention. It's existed anywhere where you didn't have strict hierarchies where you have to do what the boss says. And so in Greece, the saying was that whoever invented voting killed democracy because then you just vote and somebody else actually engages in the democracy, but you don't. But in indigenous cultures, it's amazing to look at the literature, the Jesuit missionaries who wrote about their experience in, in uh, the, what we then were calling the New World, Turtle Island, or, or North America. They admitted that the people who lived there that many of the cultures, now it's not universal, just because something is called indigenous doesn't mean it's perfectly wise, and just because it comes from the dominant culture doesn't mean it's totally ignorant. We've got wisdom. What the missionaries found was that there were many cultures here where there wasn't, uh, there weren't laws that were enforced by violence. And and yet the societies were more peaceful overall. So you see these Jesuits saying, look, we have so many laws, and we have so much more violence. And these people, they don't have the, this kind of uh, aggression-based law code, legal code, and they're more peaceful. And they seem to be happier. So there's what you could call an indigenous critique of the dominant culture that still holds that we, we have certain people in power that we have to give deference to no matter what, whereas a chief in these cultures could not force anybody to do anything. The only thing that they could do was be such a wise counsel that people would be inclined to listen. But you can't have true, true, true democracy as these uh, indigenous people had it unless you have a situation where everyone can think well, can discuss together, and everyone can agree to a course of action without the threat of violence. You understand what I mean? So if 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 you have any kind of political system where whoever disagrees, they have to do it anyway, or else we come with guns or sticks. That was not the situation in these cultures. It was that we all can debate and discuss, and we will all arrive at something that no one has to be threatened to do. <laughs> you know, they, they will all just agree, okay, this is what we're going to do. And that's a very different system. So the idea ultimately is that wisdom, love, and beauty hold us in check. Nobody has to really hold us in check. That that those themselves can. And through the presence of the elders, it gets strengthened. And of course, sometimes things happen. The Jesuits said, yeah, sometimes, you know, some people, there'll be a fight, there'll be violence. Somebody might even get killed. Okay, but then they make peace. They fix it, you know. <laughs> they, don't, they don't punish the person. It has to be made right somehow. And people have to get right again. So... Uh, I think, of course, we have this in our capacity. And I used to see, uh, just in the short span of time of, say, a university course, 10 weeks or 15 weeks, students could have big shifts 
in in where their life was heading. And it's not hard for that to begin to get so much better that we can change the culture. In fact, probably one of the things that scares us is that we know we could do it, but part of us is afraid to let go of the things. You know, we have a nostalgia for our own suffering, and we would rather cling to the devil we know, cling to the unhappiness and the problems that we know, rather than let ourselves in experience the joy that is unknown right now. And we may also suspect that some of the things that we kind of like and that we'll use to medicate ourselves won't make that transition. So it might be that you're not going to get a new phone every year anymore. Oh my God, what am I, you know, I don't know what'll make it, but I do suspect that there are there are parts of us. It's very important to understand this, I think, especially in relation to psychedelics, that even though this doesn't make sense, there's a there's might be something in us that's saying, Oh, I want the truth, I want reality, I want the healing. If we don't recognize that there's a part of us that is terrified of it, we will again cause more problems. This is how people get traumatized in, in a psychedelic experience or re-traumatized or whatever it might be. And it's the reason why a, a person can go on a spiritual retreat and end up in a psych ward just from meditating. Why? Because the ego, if it sees something it's not ready to see, it's terror. It's a real shock. So we can't rush. That's another part of an answer to your question. We can't rush. We can't force everyone to become elders. And at the same time, if we don't start changing the conversation and start the, changing the way we live our lives, then yeah, we'll, we'll be just too late. We'll be left with whatever happens on the other side of a catastrophe. Wow. Very powerful stuff. I love this concept of we attach to the, the, the nostalgia of, of attachment to the to nostalgia of suffering is so prevalent in, in any self transformational journeys honestly this is has been this is the common thread again and again and again like the person is ready you know i'm ready i'm ready but then like you said there's somehow there is a deep attachment to the the suffering do you know one of the the themes that has come up for our community for example there is this perpetuated need to slaying dragons entering into the underworld finding whatever this is like going into the darkness and coming out like with light or something like that but not realizing that in that underworld not so much could be the darkness that you're afraid of it's the light the joy and that's that that could be your darkness and somehow we haven't we haven't caught the that thing and a lot of people come into self-improvement or self-developmental journeys or explorations. They always want to somehow go into the underworld. And that kind of is informed by, like you said, the attachment to their suffering that even the transformational journey looks like this type of... But then again, there is a paradox to it, which going through that journey to find your joy could be a very dark process, like you said, because there is a lot of fear and ter like they're terrified and there's the attachment um i think this is great to bring these conversations and and this little shift of understanding or a breakthrough in somebody in their mental state can change it causes this ripple effect in their lives and it touches everything they do like they wake up with a, a very different lens looking at the world right so again comes back to okay patience devotion we can't rush this. 
Um, also, what, what, what are your thoughts about the divine timing? Because some people will be ready to yeah. grasp this concept and some, you know, like you said, there's still a lot of attachment. Uh, one other thing that I bring a lot into the conversation is the concept of leverage. Okay. So the leverage could be something so bad happening in their lives that they almost have no option but to change and let go. Uh -huh. Could be a terminal illness they are confronted with, death and a loss, or something's really deeply terrifying or, or, or kind of confronting the ego of, of that loss. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So this could be like the leverage that kind of quickens the mental paradigm shift for many people yeah it can be well i also wanted to just acknowledge one of the, th the things that you were saying before about the dragons so it's it, it is important to recognize that we don't have to kill them <laughs> and this very interesting contrast between the way hercules faces the hydra the dragon and uh of course, he has to. He said, "This is one of his great labors. He has to go kill the Hydra, and it's this many-headed dragon. And every time he cuts off a head, two sprout in its place. And so then he, his nephew is there helping him, and he comes and he gets fire. And every time Hercules cuts a head, he cauterizes the wound so it can't grow back. But then he gets that. Then Hercules is now getting the upper hand, and he's down to the final head. But that head." is immortal so when he cuts it off it's not dead and what does he do he buries it under a rock under a big boulder <laughs> so this shows a lot that can go wrong in our assumptions about dragons um, because we think we have to fight them but then when we fight them sometimes we might think we're killing them because the myth makes it clear that a two more heads sprout but Hercules didn't see that coming, right? and he might not have been aware as they were looming over his head, right? So we may think we're killing the dragons, and we might not be, and then the dragon could have an immortal head, which means it's going to keep coming back. Now, Machi Glabrun, who was a yogi, she was a brilliant, brilliant spiritual teacher and a realized yogini, and she there was a a, 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 a a naga, which is kind of like a serpent or dragon kind of figure, this a big dragon living in a lake, and the lake was a poisonous lake, and it was threatening the village, and everybody was so terrified that they wouldn't even look at the lake. Now, that's archetypally very powerful, right? That That's the material we, we actually won't even look at. Sure, we'll go kill the dragon over here, but turn and look at the actually look at the unconscious. No. So what does she do? She's she trains herself, and she goes and she floats above uh, into a tree that's overlooking the lake. And the naga comes and threatens her, and she just sits there, she's completely calm. And then the naga calls all his servants, and they're there, and they're all menacing. And she turns her body into nectar. And the nectar goes into the naga, into the dragon, and the dragon drinks it, drinks it, drinks it, drinks it, drinks it, and suddenly becomes transformed and becomes her servant, and now vows to do good in the world, to bring light to the world, to bring wisdom and love. And so she doesn't kill it, she converts it into an ally. She releases its power for good. 
And how did she do that? Well, that relates to the other thing you were saying, because you were talking about you know going into the dark. And how are we going into the dark? Well, the wisdom traditions teach that you have to, the, the archetypal story that expresses it, which we have to see as both an inner and outer story, is this Brahman, who's the priest. He comes to Buddha and he says, Buddha, you are such a, 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 an icon for people. You're such a leader and a healer for them. And this wisdom you arrived at by going into the wilderness. Now, Brahman's a priest. He doesn't know anything about being in the wilderness. And Buddha was a prince. He wasn't a wilderness guide. He wasn't trained to be out in the wilderness. And this is 2,600 years ago. There, you, know, you go into the jungle and tigers are there. You, you have real issues. And there, it was filled with life far more than even now. But we all, people who have been near wild places know it can be really noisy and there's mosquitoes, there's all this stuff. And so the Brahman says, how in the world did you go in the jungle and become enlightened? I mean, isn't that a kind of hard place to practice? And Buddha said, you know, it's really good you asked that question. He says, any, any driveler, like any drooler, any idiot, any fool can go into the forest. He said, you're right. The difference is that I went with a mind of love. I went with a mind of peace. I went with a mind of great compassion and joy. And if we understand that that, that is, remember, there's, we've tried to propose already a non-duality of the spiritual and ecological commons. So that jungle, that wild, is also our mind. And he's saying that if you want to go in and you think you're going to slay all these dragons, did you cultivate really a mind of love? Do you know what that means? And there are trainings. So you could train. Oh, I can train in compassion. It's a trainable skill. I can train in equanimity. It's a trainable skill. And then I can go into the unconscious and maybe not kill stuff. Maybe I could transform it. It could become liberated. Okay, so that's all. I, I hope that uh, uh, honors some of what you're saying because I think you're getting at really important things that must be going on in your in your community. I mean, yeah, that's uh, these are all uh, really important. But now I've forgotten what your what your question was. I'm sorry. No, no, it's it's no, it's it's uh, it really touches on everything that we've been the the yeah. thread that I was being the common thread. So the. Yeah. My, my question initially was everything you said really speaks to to the to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Joy being darkness, for example, it's a common thread. Everybody, it's like it, almost. Um, it is hard to grasp this through a just the psychedelic experience in its own. Yes. And 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 like you said, um, it made me think of philosophy. If we can bring the storytelling sort of storytelling that that powerful i think for me storytelling is really is where it's at in terms of interpretation of of these symbolic and metaphorical experiences that that psychedelic medicines reveal and so you know until somebody speaks to this somebody can have an incredible psychedelic experience and never really understand that um, the joy was their darkness, and that now they need to go out in the world and cultivate joy. Yes. Which is unfamiliar, very uncomfortable, very unsettling in the system. Yeah. But, but if they don't grasp this, then what they do is they continually come back, sit again, sit again, 150 times in ayahuasca ceremony, yeah. each, each time. The suffering is amplified, suffering is amplified, it's self self-serving, that's nostalgia of you know hanging on to suffering. And then what emerges from that kind of approach is they become righteous in their suffering, 
because now they're more powerful in their suffering mm -hmm. and then they can um, manipulate the circles with their suffering. Now every, everybody's like, you know, organically there is this, you know, elephant in the room by them becoming more, because they are, they can do suffering really well. Now they demand respect. Um, you know, there's an inside joke that we say, and they want their badge. Where is my badge of suffering? Right. Yes. And I'm, and I'm also <laughs> entitled to my trophy. Where is my trophy of suffering? And then yes. the, the entire. Do you see how it's just like an infinite, but also circle? A, a trophy of of bliss. It's the same problem on the other side. You know, when people think they've seen it, they think, mm -hmm. "Oh, I, I'm, I have experienced, you know, uh, the death of the ego." And oh, okay, so are you enlightened? I mean, what are you saying? So people want their badge of bliss, their badge of "I transcended the self," and it's no different problem actually. You're, you're, yeah. These yeah. are these are real issues of how um, if we don't have training, then we're not going to know. And the other thing is, if we don't, if we're We've been so cut off. All the all the traditions of the world have been so destabilized by conquest consciousness that there are are probably things in many traditions that the people don't really even know is possible anymore because it has been forgotten. And I and I say this with with you know deep respect. It's Fine Deloria who was a Lakota Sioux scholar, very important uh, intellectual on Turtle Island, and as an indigenous person, he was saying, look. We were so destabilized by this that there is stuff that we we are going to have to recover. It's it's gone. There's no living person who really knows. And so that's another thing about the wisdom traditions is is especially the ones that have text and the ones that have traditions where there are figures. We can we can start to find out more about what's actually possible for a human being. And without that, we actually don't know. Um, this is so, so what it's like treating our high school physics professor like they're Einstein because we just don't know enough science. Like we think, oh my God, this must, must be the most brilliant scientist, or treating ourselves. We're not realizing that we're just a high school physics level. It's this is referred to in the research as the Dunning Kruger effect. And and the idea is that our ignorance has a limit. When I was a kid, I remember uh, some adult taught me to play ping pong, and it was just in this really like little kid way. And then I never really played ping pong. And then years later, oh, but there's a ping pong table. And I played with some other, This so I, I was six when I first learned it. And oh, this is great. This is so fun. And then I'm like 12, right? And I'm playing with some 14-year-old kid who's a ping pong nerd, right? And it was just like, oh my God, I don't even know how to play the game, right? I mean, you, like, forget it. I can't do anything. It's similar, like if you think you can play chess and then Bobby Fischer sits down and says, well, let me actually show you. And you don't realize, like, I was having fun playing chess with my grandmother or whatever. And somebody comes in and beats you in three moves and you think, I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> and so we, we have to recognize that the wisdom traditions, they carry a lot of this, including that everything that's possible only with ayahuasca for us or whatever it might be is possible without it. At these stages, we're perfectly... Buddha was perfectly capable of, of doing all kinds of, which is one of the things that Ram Das got to learn, right? And you might have seen his his um, that uh, autobiographical movie of his. And he said, you know, I, I had a bottle of LSD pills and I knew even one of them would have me tripping for 12 hours, right? And his teacher, Babaji, took a handful of them, swallowed them, and was no different. It was like, it's like they were sugar pills. 
And he said, it was like he wanted to tell me, you have no idea what's possible for the mind. Yes, very powerful indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we have, you know, records of historical, you know, lots of stories around people doing this without the medicines, like Rumi, for example, one... We don't know if they did or not, but I mean, look at look at the body of work that came out of his journey, and um, yeah. yeah, there's many, many, many that doesn't come to my mind straight away. But yeah, yeah, it is it is very important to understand this, of course. Yeah. Well, there's so many things I want to open up, Fred, but I know we're coming to end of our conversation. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back, Nikos, because this is very, very important. I think. These conversations will definitely, in my understanding, will help shape the the whole sense making, and like you said, the the um, it's the fundam. This is now like I'm built. I'm developing more passion and inspired by all the work that you're doing, and I think it's almost for me critical to bring this into the field of what we are doing with uh, psychedelic medicines. Um, but before we let you go, I'd like to ask you if you could speak to maybe your experiences with the psychedelic medicines and how they, how do you, you, you know, commune? That's my new word. I like that. Um, yeah. And and how they, how, how you know where you are, you, your understanding informs. Because you said something before we began. You said about not so much how psychedelics inform but it's the other way around. So would be yeah. interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, I think uh, I, I would say that it seems to be essential to get clear that we're going to carry some philosophy of life to the psychedelics and that they are going to help us realize a holistic philosophy of life or not. And that's part of the difference between when you were pointing, when you think of people like Rumi or Buddha, I don't know any kind of powerful holistic image of mind has ever come that would be comparable to buddha's teachings and you look you read this guy's teachings and it's an incredibly sophisticated psychology and philosophy so sophisticated that we're putting people in brain scanners now and we're saying oh my goodness we're learning about the mind from buddha's practitioners that's a very very significant thing and of course it's been probably the biggest influence right now on psychotherapy even the psychotherapy always takes from the wisdom traditions because again they were the therapy for the soul and so the early waves with freud and jung were taken from nietzsche and the ancient greeks and then cbt the cognitive behavioral revolution that came from the stoics and this is acknowledged i mean nobody's hiding this uh and then now a huge revolution has come from buddhist philosophy and i just don't know anybody who's taken a psychedelic and and said here let me explain to you everything i learned and it's this profound and it's this level of sophistication so whatever was going on with this guy i really don't think that you know i think we can believe that it was coming from what he said which is uh, just practice he in fact gave a teaching where he said the reason i uh, somebody was asking him to perform a miracle uh, he was in some town like a kind of in a city in india and the guy said you know buddha people love you here man you know, you're such a well-respected figure. And boy, would they go off the charts for you if you could just do a miracle. Yeah. And Buddha said, nah, I, I don't do that. And the guy kept pushing as these Buddhist stories, that's how it often is, because he first just, you know, demurs. But then if they push, then he says, okay, look, I, you're asking me for a teaching at this point. And he said, if I performed a miracle, 
And he, he lists different kinds, like uh, one of them is mind reading. That's its own class of miracle. And then there are all these psychic powers. And that includes everything else, you know, teleport yourself, go to other dimensions, talk to gods. And um, so all the things that happen in psychedelic trips too. And he said, look, if I did, if I performed a miracle like that, people would say, oh, he did, he, he took some plant and that allowed him to do it. Or he had some magical amulet. They will never believe that the practice of philosophy allowed me to do that. They will never believe that's where it came from. So it's useless because the most important miracle, there's all the miracles you think are miracles, the most important miracle is education. And if I teach people, then they'll find out for themselves and they won't say, oh, it's a plant that made him do it. They'll know. So for me, I think that was important. There was a, a point at which I, you know, I had been curious about psychedelics for a long time and I kept waiting to have more of a verification of what the wisdom traditions say is possible, to really see them working and changing me and the way I was being able to be present in the world. And once those shifts became significant enough, okay, where I really felt like, okay, these are some breakthrough experiences, then I thought, okay, now I might be in a place where I could approach psychedelics and know that I already verified some. There's much more to the wisdom traditions. I'm not Buddha or something. I'm not enlightened. But okay, I've had really, really profound shifts. Anything I would have wanted from psychedelics, I see comes I can get from this. So then I could take that practice to working with them. And it was a surprise to me because they are so powerful. Uh, I was surprised that the experiences, of course, I should have known, right? In an intellectual way, we understand set and setting and all of that. But this is where it really became clear to me because my experience was so significantly different from other people that I, I realized, oh, I, get, I could not have had this experience without the training. But it was really profound and beautiful and incredible. Didn't overwrite anything. All it did was more resonance. Oh, Yes, these teachings were really clear. They were really about the nature of mind and these mysteries. And of course, I also found that uh, that it was it made the experience less uh, suffering. Okay, like if something difficult comes up, people know how difficult that can be. And I just didn't uh, have experiences like that. I could meet something difficult, and okay, here it is. But I could begin to meet it with compassion, not slaying that dragon, but feeding it. And meeting those dragons, you, you you become strengthened by the wisdom tradition to go and face the dragons and not be afraid of them. And so all of these things, you know, seeing some people getting traumatized or re-traumatized by, by psychedelic experiences, I saw these things happen. And as you were pointing out, people just coming again and again and again, either kind of working with the same issue or, you know what, it just moved. It's the same issue, but it just has a different form now. So you thought you fixed that thing. And here you are, another round of medicine, another round of medicine. And uh, so that's part of it for me to really feel. And when I prepare to work with the medicine, not only do I have a daily practice, but then I'll go much deeper. You know, I might fast, um, do more intensive study, focus on, say, a particular teaching of a philosopher and just really, really hold that. Really hold, okay, what is the meaning of this teaching? What is the meaning of this teaching? And just meditate with it and go into the ceremony and sit with that spiritual question very deliberately to try to understand some aspect of mind or reality. So I think it can do a lot, and these are just general sketches. But for me also, it's not a thing I do regularly. It's actually, uh, I because I feel that that my daily practice is far more powerful than anything will happen with a psychedelic, it's occasional. And I often, I have to say, the biggest driver for me is to have these conversations. 
it's it's not because I think I'm going to get something from the medicine. I have respect it, of course, but I'm coming to it saying I really want to understand you to help other people working with you. Um, I, I'm not in a place where I've, I'm trying to get something from it. Um, so I think that's important too. So I feel like that's part of my responsibility as a philosopher is that I happen to be open to working with these medicines and they're popular right now. And so that's, that is a very significant factor that I take them to see what I could do to serve other people who might be working with them. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your personal affiliation and yeah. your, your journey. Um, very helpful. So it kind of brings me back to what I always hold to be true about it's all about the container, which I call the container. I shouldn't maybe, maybe yes. there's a better word, lack of a better <laughs> word, but um, yeah. So that kind of defines the the whole outcome. It comes from, you know, alchemy. That, that was the idea, right? The container, the retort. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, and the alchemists called themselves sons of Sophia. In other words, they were they were philosophers. They thought of themselves as philosophers. And they knew that they were trying to purify the soul. And so you're right. They were the training of alchemy was to create, uh, it's called a retort, technically speaking, but to create a container so that you could handle the heat. Mm-hmm. And that's what all the wisdom traditions always offer us is is if you if you really want liberation, then you have to have a container that can handle the energy of liberation. And in our daily lives as well, that whatever the difficult thing is that that we want to brace against and go, oh no, not this today we see that as a very gateway to our own liberation right now. That's a gateway to liberation, the thing we're trying to push away. So the bad news becomes good news when you create that container, not just in the psychedelic space, but in your life. You start to say, okay. And another way to think of it is that we become a refuge for beings, You know that, that all these sentient beings are really needing us to be a refuge for them right now. And we mean, I mean, everybody, not just other humans, but that so many beings need us to be a refuge instead of a force for ultimately ignorance. So, yeah, I like that image. It's a good one. Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much, Nikos, for the Thank time. Thank you, my friend. For your wisdom and everything that you brought here today. Uh, really, really valuable. And um, yeah, hope to have you back again very soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I see that, you know, I see such value in having these conversations right now, especially. Um, so what would you like to um, say or tell our listeners about your offerings, um, your way of, you know, what, how can they find you? We will add all your links and your information sure. in the show notes, but just yeah. just to kind of fill them in about your work and how can they follow you and learn from you. Sure. Well, thank you for your work, really. It's really important to to have the strength and to put in the time that you put in. I mean, you're thanking me for my time, but I appreciate, you know, you're trying to do something to to help and to offer support and real, it's an act of love, and I appreciate that. And um, sure, yeah, people can, there's lots of free resources. As I said, as I said there's a podcast, and the Dangerous Wisdom podcast has a series on psychedelics, and then it's a kind of ongoing theme. But there was a, a sort of long series where we started with an interview with Rick Strassman and worked through uh, some of the things that we touched on here, actually, in our in our dialogue. And uh, so then there are other, other episodes will appear, but then you can start to get into the larger context there, too. So there's a series on magic which tries to take a really serious, sober, scientific look at what the meaning of magic is in our world and uh, the... Um, 
uh, questions that we dealt with here are, are just dealt with there. And then there are other resources on the website on the resources page. So that's dangerouswisdom.org. And then the Dangerous Wisdom podcast, you can find it there or wherever you do your podcasts. Um, you can subscribe. I think that's the main thing, you know, try to see your lives really as what they are, that you have a philosophical view on everything, everything. And what happens if we begin to ask what the great sages of all time, the real world-turning sages, what did they say about some of the elements of philosophy that maybe would be essential for you to learn about and, and see how it could help liberate your potentials? Mm, that's wonderful. Thank you so much again. Really appreciate yeah, thank that. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. So thank you so much, everybody. Um, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And um, yeah, do get in touch with Nikos and myself. Uh, don't forget to comment, ask questions, don't be shy. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.